The book of Zechariah, as you'll be aware, is found at the very back of the Old Testament. It's a very small book in comparison to other books of the Bible, and it comes under the title of the Minor Prophets. In the Hebrew Bible, you'll find that these are actually compiled into one book. They're not split into the various books that we have in our modern-day translation. I say modern-day, but you know what I mean by that. In our version that we have before us, they have been itemized by the prophet themselves. But originally, these all came together. And we have to bear in mind as we come to these books, the minor prophets at the back of your Old Testament, that these were, were books that were, were written, these were prophets that were living all around the same sort of time and era. In actual fact, Haggai, the, the book prior to this, and the prophet that wrote that book or that prophesied those words, lived and prophesied only a mere few months prior to Zechariah. Two months prior, if you add up the dates and you, you kind of go back in your calendars, in the Old Testament calendar, the way they work things, you'll find that these men, they were contemporaries of each other. They preached, in a sense, almost alongside each other. Haggai was an older man, and perhaps he came along to encourage and to uh, be a blessing to Zechariah. But Zechariah was giving a ministry, a ministry to go forward and give hope to a people that were living in despair. To give hope to a people that were wondering, when was God going to fulfill his promise? When was God going to show his hand of mercy? When was God going to lift his hand of wrath and give us abundance and blessing that we might behold? In a bit more of the historical context, we can remind ourselves as well of, of a book way on back in, in your Old Testament, the book of Ezra. And we have the historical account of a man called Zerubbabel coming and being called of God to go forward and to build and rebuild the temple. And that was all happening around the same time as Haggai and Zechariah were called to preach and to prophesy. In fact, uh, perhaps you'll turn with me to uh, Ezra back in your uh, Old Testament again. And uh, you'll find that it's nowhere near uh, these minor prophets. Yet, historically speaking, they were quite close in time. If you turn to Ezra and See if I can have the, the chapter here, Ezra chapter 4, and the latter couple of verses reading into chapter 5, we, we get a bit of the context. Zerubbabel had went forward with a group of, of exiles that had been wanting and longing to go back to their homeland, and it says there in the verse 23 of chapter 4 of Ezra, now when the copy of King, I wasn't planning to read this, so forgive me if I get this mispronounced, now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their companions. They went up in haste to Jerusalem unto the Jews and made them to cease by force and power. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And bear that in mind. Remember what uh, verse 1 of Zechariah chapter 1 tells us. It was in the second year of this same king. Chapter 5 goes on, it says, Then the prophets Haggai and the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God, of the God of Israel, even unto them. So that gives you a bit of the, the background as to what Zechariah was dealing with. It's a bit like me coming to the pulpit here and maybe uh, writing in, in a journal or preaching to the people and having it recorded down in, in the sermon that's recording at this time, uh, telling you about the, the circumstances in which our little land is facing at the moment. 
it's a good idea to know what preachers are preaching on, especially when it comes to, to topics and to uh, the histories that we have in the Old Testament especially. Uh, we come as preachers and we'll maybe preach sermons at certain times, maybe throughout lockdown and COVID, uh, sermons that would have dealt with those themes specifically. We come to times of election. Whenever we are electing leaders and leadership in our land, we might deal with those topics because of what's going on in the world around us. And we seek to come into the Word of God, to apply the Word of God for the circumstances in which we live at certain times. Well, Zechariah was writing to a specific people at a specific time for a very specific reason. The building of the temple had ceased. No longer was the work being continued. Zerubbabel had been blessed of God. They had went and taken a party of people to go and to build. And maybe you've been part of a building team in the past. You went out and helped for a time. And it's a little bit like this. It was a short-lived endeavor. For you, it might have lasted a few weeks. For Zerubbabel and his band of builders, they went out and it lasted a year. And they got as far as laying the foundations. But the work ceased. They began to become disheartened in their labors for the Lord. And they stopped working for God. Instead of building his house, they began to build their own house. And there's nothing wrong with doing that in a practical sense. There's nothing wrong with getting your own, uh, your own life in order to have your own building. But the problem with it was, they went for the purpose of building the Lord's house. Because of difficulties that arose, because of the enemies of God that were coming from without and those that were rising up from within, they found discouragement too much to bear. They began to slack in the work which God had led them to do. And I wonder here as we come to this ministry of Zechariah this morning, this afternoon, and we present to you his word and his message, I wonder is there somebody here that has been led into some form of ministry, has been led to do something for the Lord, whatever it might have been, however great it may have been, or however small you might think it might be, has there been somebody here that has been called to do something for the Lord, and you're beginning to slack? The sad reality is that most commentators reckon that it was about 16 years since they had ceased working. And don't we know what it's like to fall into a rut at times? We as believers, we got saved maybe in our, in our youth as children, maybe in our teens. We were filled with zeal and ambition and the glory of God was our main focus and primary goal. And we set out to evangelize. We set out to join whatever team was doing outreach and preaching the gospel. And we wanted to witness. We wanted to encourage. We wanted to bless. And then discouragement comes. And it ceases. Distractions come. And the tools are put down. Maybe legitimate things. Duties and responsibilities that we might take up as we get older in life. But all of a sudden, the work comes to a halt. And it can be discouraging to look around at times in the church today. But Zechariah's message was not a discouraging message. It was a message of hope to a discouraged people. And I want you to realize here this this afternoon as we, we consider God's word but it's not my ambition, it's not my desire to discourage you. God wants you to be drawn in to see the reality of what we, what we have become, the reality of what we are as a nation, the reality of where we stand spiritually in order to give us hope for the days that lie ahead. Are you living with hope, child of God? The message 
that is found in chapter 1 and the verse 3. It simply says, turn ye unto me. And we could preach that evangelically to the sinner. You must turn and it could be rightly presented as a very simplistic evangelical message to you. Turn to God. There is no hope outside of him. You must run to Jesus Christ for salvation. But child of God, we need that message just as much as a sinner sometimes. We need to reflect. We need to remember. We need to be reminded about the fact that we have been saved to serve the King, to run into his arms and to find our hope, which we were singing about a moment ago, our hope built in nothing else but him. These people had built the foundation, but that is as far as they got. Perhaps your foundation has become overgrown in worldliness and sinfulness and idolatry in coldness, lukewarmness, various duties and other responsibilities, maybe your own home, your own desires have been taking the place of the Lord. And we might say, figuratively, figuratively speaking, that your house is looking very pretty, looking well. You can be house proud, but spiritually speaking, there is to be concern. And I want us to recognize here that the Lord comes and gives a message to Zechariah in this difficult era in which he was ministering. A message of hope. And how does he, how does he want to emphasize that? Well, I want you to notice a word or, or a term that is mentioned over and over again. It's a title that is given to the Lord. And we've read it, I don't know how many times already. But it is the Lord of hosts that is speaking. Verse 3, Therefore say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts. I want you to consider the Lord of hosts. And his message to his people from Zechariah this afternoon. I want you to see in the first place his wrath. And you might think, well, you've tried to build this up to make us encouraged. And why are you beginning with wrath? Humanly speaking, if you were to go out into the world and ask somebody to to conjure up an encouraging message for God's people, they probably would not begin with wrath. But again, as I've already highlighted, we must begin with recognizing who the Lord is and where we stand. These people, if you just glance over to um, the verse number 12 of chapter 1, in the latter part, it makes mention of three score and ten years. That's 70 years that these people had been in captivity. 70 years of judgment, 70 years of persecution, and that was God's judgment upon their fathers. Many of these people that Zechariah was ministering to were second, third, fourth, maybe even beyond that, a generation of people that were brought into exile. A bit like us in our denomination. Some people here have been brought up in this very church, brought up in our denomination. And we look back to our forefathers and we look back to the blessings that they experienced. It's not the case for the people that Zechariah was ministering to. They had to look back to a, a, a uh, forefathers, their forefathers that were living in sin, that had received the wrath of God. That was their parentage. And God had looked down upon their, their fathers, their parents before, and they had seen sin. He had warned them. They had been given many warnings about their idolatry, but they provoked God to wrath over and over and over and over again. And this is what he, he reminds them of in uh, the opening chapter. It says there in the verse number 4, Be ye not as your fathers unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. And it's a very scary question that is asked. And I wonder, will our children ask of us this question? When will their children come and consider and contemplate what we did as a generation? Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? 
Where are those that live in sin? Where are those that have heard the word of God and disobeyed that word? Where are those that have been called to serve but have put down the tools? No matter what your circumstances are, God has something for us to do. And God wants us to take heed to this warning. Not to become like these people. Who were then dragged from their homes, dragged from their, uh, their fancy living, we might say, dragged from their idolatry into the enemy's camp and cast out for 70 long years. You see, the sins of their parents came with consequences, like every sin. And these children, these individuals had grown up in foreign lands and surrounded by foreign idols were now having to rebuild not just the physical foundations of the temple, but spiritually speaking, they had to build again from the ground up. They had very little reference points. They had very little to look to in those that came before. And the warning for the people here was, do not fall in the same step as your parents because your parents suffered the wrath of God, because they provoked God to wrath. Whatever the sin is that we might be hiding within our hearts, Whatever the iniquity might be that you might have within your conscience as I preach and the Holy Spirit might be penetrating deep into your soul right now about some dark part of your life which very little people know about, if any. God wants you to put it to death this afternoon. He wants you to deal with it. Do not allow it to grow. Do not allow it to increase. Do not allow it to flourish because if you do, then it will provoke God to wrath. And you will perish. God's wrath was upon their parents because they provoked him. And the result was that they perished. Very few of those that were dragged out from their homes by the Babylonians and the Persians, everybody else that came after them, very few of them came back to the temple. Many of them perished in their sins. Many of them perished unconverted. Yet they held, they held the name of God as if it was their name. They called themselves Israel. They called themselves those that had seen the face of God. Yet they had not. What they were by name, they were not by nature. And so God's wrath was poured out upon them. And I want you to, to bear in mind that I'm exhorting you, and Zechariah and the Holy Spirit, through his word, is exhorting you to turn to the God of wrath. Run to him. That seems a strange thing, doesn't it? Whenever we get angry and we get frustrated and we get cross, maybe at our children, they don't come running to us. Whenever they know they're in trouble, that's probably not the first thing that they would want to do, naturally speaking. We are not looking to an earthly father. We're looking to a heavenly one. One that is in control of circumstances, one that is in control of history, one that was in control of their past and their present. And he wants them to run to him in his wrath because in his wrath there is mercy. He remembers his mercy in wrath. And we know that from the book of Jonah. We know that from other places in Scripture where God presents a message of judgment and damnation and condemnation. But when the people repent, He shows His grace. He shows His mercy to them. And this is seen in His Word. We looked very briefly at His wrath. But we see, and I want to just highlight this in passing really, His Word. Because we can look at verse number 3 and say, Therefore say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, and not think anything of the fact that the Lord of hosts is saying anything at all. But that is a grace. That is a mercy. That is to be an encouragement for us. 
And those three things come together to, to build up and to bolster the church of God, to help us as we consider the fact that we deserve God's wrath, but he gave us his word. A word that is merciful in the midst of our misery. A word that comes to us whenever he sees us in the time of need. A time of difficulty. He sees us struggling. He sees us wondering, where is God in this world today? Where is he in the church? Where is the blessing? He sees the misery of your life. He sees the misery of your circumstances and your condition. And he is merciful in your misery. And he comes to you this afternoon with a word. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. He wants to encourage you. He wants to bless you. And it is his word that we go to for blessing. Give up on the world. The world is the source of your misery. Run to Christ and his word for it will be filled and it is filled with mercy. It's not just a merciful word, it is also a gracious word, as we said. And it is gracious and this is something I try to highlight every so often when I'm preaching around. Mercy it does go alongside with misery. God is merciful to us whenever he sees us in a miserable condition. But he's gracious to us. Those two things are slightly different because his grace is in light of our guilt. We are all guilty. We are all guilty. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how long you've professed faith in Jesus Christ. Even as believers, we are guilty of falling short of the glory of God. This week, maybe even this morning, guilty. Guilty of disobeying God. Guilty of not doing what he's asked us to do. Guilty and yet still again, you are found in the house of the Lord. You're found in the place of worship. You're found with the Bible open in front of you. You're found with the word of the Lord of hosts once again speaking. We don't deserve it. We are not worthy of his word. But God in mercy looks at our miserable condition which we have caused because of our own guilt and he is gracious. And he comes and he gives us this word and it is to be a word of encouragement because of the enemies that were around them. They were looking around, they saw the world in all its wickedness, in all its vileness. And we could do the very same thing and I could draw so many parallels and pictures. We could point to our society today and the, the wickedness that is flaunted in the streets. But I don't need to do that because you see that week by week. What I want to remind you of is the encouragement of the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? What is or who is the Lord of hosts? That term and the, the, the phrase that is given to him here, it is emphasizing that he is the one that is sovereign ruler of the armies of heaven. That's how it's often put anyway. Lord of hosts is simply designating him as the, the one that is in control of the heavenly army. But I believe there's more to it than that. In the original language, it has the idea of Jehovah of the masses. Sovereign of the masses. Sovereign of the multitude. He's sovereign of the Babylonians. Sovereign of the Persians. Sovereign of the homosexuals in our day and age. Sovereign of those that are wanting to wreak havoc on the family. Wreak havoc on home life. He is in control of every single aspect of our society. From the bottom to the top. Inside out. He is the ruler. He is in control. He is Jehovah of the masses, whoever they might be. Yes, it could include the armies of heaven. Yes, it might include the armies of Babylon as he uses them as the means whereby he punishes and judges his people. It doesn't matter who it is. He is in control of everything. Everyone. All of us. 
And there's encouragement for us in that because whenever the enemy comes in like a flood, we know that God is in behind it. There is a reason for it. There is a purpose to it. And it's to show forth his glory. Perhaps in judgment. Perhaps as he reminds us of the need for us to repent and run from our own sins. God has a desire to give us a word of encouragement. Because he is the Lord of hosts, the Lord that is in control. But further than speaking about the people out there and the the armies in heaven and the armies outside of the church, he is the Lord of the army which is the church. And as Zechariah begins his little sermon here in chapter number 1 and says, Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, it is a call to action. A call to activity, a call to service, a call to return to the building of the church. God is with us. Child of God, God is with you in your endeavors to seek and to serve the Lord. God wants you to press on and upward with him. He is there as your, not just as as some random individual that comes to, to help us and to encourage us in some little blase way. No, he is the one that is leading at the front of the fray, in the midst of the battle. He is there as a victor, as a champion. How do we know that? Zechariah reminds us of the Messiah throughout this entire book over and over again with various pictures and imagery. We have the king, we have the priest, we have the prophet emphasized in this book and the various imagery and the dreams that he receives. We have the the individual, the shepherd coming in and riding the ass into Jerusalem. We have the, the individual that was sold for 30 pieces of silver mentioned and all these prophecies that Zechariah leads the people to consider is all pointing to Jesus Christ who would live and who would die for us. As king, not just of the Jews, but of his people, the church. And we come and we stand under his banner and we cry that he is the king of our lives as we sing from our hymn books over and over again at times throughout the year. King of my life, I cry thee now. But do we do anything for that king? Be encouraged to do. He is the Lord of hosts for the encouragement of his people. And he comes and he speaks once again. As he spoke in the days of Zechariah to us as his people today. To press us onward. To move us forward in his work. To do whatever it is he's called you to do. To do it well for his glory. It is his will. His wrath is seen. The Lord of hosts, his wrath is noted. As we consider the, the parents that were provoking his wrath and ultimately perished. We've noted his word that was merciful in the midst of their misery, gracious in light of their guilt, and encouragement to them in the midst of their enemies. But his will, what is his will? Verse 3, which is the primary verse for this afternoon, Turn ye unto me. There's repentance here. There's the reception of the word here. There is a returning of God into the camp here. This is what he desires for us. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. He wants to be with us. But there has to be the reception of the word. Have you noted the condition? Have you noted the prerequisite for the Lord being in the church with us? Helping us in our endeavors for his kingdom? In the building of his temple, spiritually speaking, we must receive his word. We must hear it. We must heed it. We must be the opposite of our forefathers when it comes to the people of Zechariah's day. We must obey God. 
We must hear God and we must hearken unto Him. It must be the reception of the Word. Remember being counseled by a, not a senior minister, but a, a man more senior than I am anyway, about the ministry, and talking about churches and preaching around, and he said something along the lines of never, not that I've had this problem to deal with, but never go to a church unless you have felt the reception of the Word. Never accept a call to a church, I think is what he was referring to. It must be the reception of the Word. It must be the reception of truth. The reception of what God is saying as true. Turn back to chapter 8, which we read uh, prior to chapter 1. And just look at those last two verses which we read together. And look how central truth is. And that truth must be received. These, verse 16 of chapter 8, these are the things that ye shall do. This is what it meant for them to receive the word. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor and love no false oath. For all these are things that I hate, saith the Lord. That was a specific message for a specific day under specific circumstances. And there are many more such commands which we should follow in our own day and age. Come to the word of God, remind, remind ourselves that we have it written down for us from Genesis right the way through the Revelation, various commandments and things that we should take heed to and receive. Have you received them? Have you received the word of God as true? Do you speak to others about its truth and tell them of the truth of God's word? Have you hearkened unto it in your heart? Or have you just heard something in the background, noise of life, begun moving on. God wants us to pause here and to hear, to hearken and to receive his word in our hearts. And that will lead to repentance. It will lead to action. It will lead to doing something. This is what we must do, it says in chapter 8. You cannot leave this service, and I trust no one will leave this service, myself included, Having preached the word, having hearing, heard these words, go out and not turn. Go home and not do. It can be easy to do that, can't it? So easy to do nothing. But God wants us to repent. He wants us to hold on to truth and to purity. Turn with me to James, that chapter I mentioned earlier, chapter 4, in the verse 8. Hebrews, and then to James. Just so you can see these words, which is really the New Testament equivalent of what we have before us in Zechariah, chapter 1. It says, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. But the verse does not end there. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Go home this afternoon with one mind, with one purpose, to glorify God with every inch of your being, that he would be magnified in every moment of our lives. 
And what does it promise us? What is his will? His will is that we would receive his word. His will is that we would repent, run to him, turn to him. And his will above and beyond that, these are really the prerequisites for him to accomplish his will. His will is that he will return and walk with them. Live with them. Be with them. This is God's desire for his people, for his church. Why? Why whenever we have failed? Why whenever we fall short of his glory? We do not deserve another opportunity, child of God. But here this afternoon he says, turn and he will turn unto us. There's a warning, and with this we'll close. The warning, as we've highlighted, deals with their fathers. Be not like them. Learn from their mistakes. Listen to his word. And only then can you live. The warning is clear. It's written down in history. A generation passed into eternity. Lost. Having done nothing for God. Having accomplished little, if anything. Humanly speaking or spiritually speaking. Their names are forgotten. Nobody knows about those that went into exile and that lived in sin and iniquity. Nobody remembers those individuals that despised and rejected God and his word and his service and his kingdom and his temple. Nobody knows who they are. Where are they? They are forgotten. We do not serve the king in order to be remembered by men. But we should serve in order that men would remember God. No matter what the cost is, no matter what the price is, we should know what it is to do all we can to bring attention to him, glory to his name, that he would be remembered in this world. It's a strange thing that because the name Zechariah really flips that on its head. With this final encouragement we'll come to close. The name itself simply means Jehovah remembers. He knows you. He knows your circumstances. He has not forgotten his promise. Those that he has saved, he will keep. Those that he has called, he will enable. And we trust that as you seek to serve the Lord in whatever capacity you can, in the difficult days in which we live, that you will be encouraged by the words of Zechariah. Go home, spend the next week in this book, be encouraged by the visions, be encouraged by the, the hope of the heavenly king returning, the shepherd of our souls coming back into this world, setting his foot down once again and bringing glory to his name across all nations. This is his promise. This is his will. That we be encouraged. So I trust you'll go home encouraged. Knowing that Jehovah remembers you, let us not forget him as we spend the rest of this day, his day, for his glory.